the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I will never forget this because his demeanor changed so quickly. He grabbed my arm above the elbow and like, like grabbed me and he looked at me and he's like, don't ever eat anything he brings in here. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Lingletter and Billy Jensen. And today is part one of a two-part story for Amy Vick. So if you are somebody that likes to binge your episodes, then wait until next week to start listening. But if you just want to like jump right ahead with us, then we're going to jump in right now. So Billy, what day is it today? Today is October 6th, and it is the Mad Hatter Day. That's the one that you're going to choose out of all of these days. Yes. Okay. I am an Alice in Wonderland fan. Yes. I went to an Alice in Wonderland themed bar in Tokyo once that I feel Fun. like you would have enjoyed. Oh my gosh, very much. Yeah. Yes. It was, it was very cute. What other days are there, Billy? There's so many good days. So many days. National Noodle Day. Uh, National <laughs> Pumpkin noodles. Seed Day. Noodles are where it's at. And and of course, you know I'm going to pick this one, Random Acts of Poetry Day. <sighs> Oh my god! Get his bongos out, someone. <laughs> Why are there so many poetry themed days? There's more more poetry than there is music. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Probably because the poets are really they're really into like making a day for themselves. That's right, because there's nobody else that's going to make a day for them. Because poets are narcissists. A bunch of narcissists. It's also um, my nightmare day, which is garlic lovers day. Mm. I love a roasted garlic. I hate garlic more than anything else in this world. So because this Jack is, is a vampire. Because I'm a vampire. It's not my day. That's okay. We can't all have every day, Jacqueline. It's okay. I'll take the L. Um, all right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. about criminals in varied forms on this podcast in every single episode. But the type of criminal we'll be examining in this story exceeds the archetypes we're used to hearing about. The villain in this case is truly diabolical, with the confidence to execute even the boldest and most blatant plots. Scarier still is the sheer unpredictability of this criminal's mind, juxtaposed against what appears to be classic escalation as they become more and more brazen even more terrifying as that you've probably never heard of this guy but that's all going to change after today we begin today's case in the spring of 1997 and truthfully the story is going to span from the 80s into the 90s but we'll help you paint a picture of 97 princess diana would be killed in a car accident madeline albright became the first female secretary of state for the first time in united states history the first harry potter book was released 
and NASA's Mars Pathfinder lander and rover landed on Mars. Lots of 90s happenings. And the setting for today's case is Nashville, Tennessee, which is the home of country music. It's where the Grand Ole Opry is, the Country Music Hall of Fame, the historic Ryman Auditorium downtown. It's also the capital of the state of Tennessee, and it's also the home of the Johnny Cash Museum. And one of my favorite places to party. (laughs) I do love a good Nashville experience. Good old honky tonk. That's right. And our first degree for today's case is named Gigi. And Gigi remembers the spring of 97 like it was yesterday. Why? Because at that time, a bizarre news story began circulating the media. A 39-year-old mother named Kathy Beadle was inexplicably missing. But women go missing in the United States all the time, as upsetting and terrifying and unfortunate as that may be. So it was not that point alone that snapped Gigi to pay attention to this news story. It was the mention of another person named in connection with this woman's disappearance, a 34-year-old man named Tony Vick. I was working for a newspaper at that time. I used to work for the Nashville scene, which was an alternative and still is an alternative news weekly here in Nashville. I was in advertising with them. So stories and talking about, you know, news events and things like that. I mean, that was like the total buzz of our, you know, of the industry of of working for this newspaper. When the story kind of erupted that this woman, you know, was missing, possibly killed. And then her partner, Tony Vick, and I'm like, Tony Vick, I know him. The reporting is split on whether Kathy and Tony were actually married or not, but you'll hear more on that later. At this point, all you need to know is that at the time Kathy went missing, she and Tony had been in a very serious relationship. They'd combined their lives and were raising their children together. Kathy had three kids from a previous marriage, and Tony had one. At the time, Tony was the prime suspect in the disappearance of Kathy. And in the midst of the effort to find her, an investigation into Tony Vick started to reveal the truth of his insidious past. And it went deeper than anyone could have imagined. So that story was crazy. You know, I'm like, I know this guy. I worked with him. So that that summer, you know, when that all happened. I mean, I was glued. I was glued to every news story on the the local news networks. They were covering it and the daily newspaper here covered it. The reason Gigi wasn't able to peel herself away from this news coverage was because the story and crimes of Tony Vick are of a truly inconceivable nature. A saga of suffering, an outlandish mix of murder, arson, fraud, extreme belief, adultery, feigned identities, and of course, money. It chilled Gigi to learn that a man she worked side by side with was actually a murderous sociopath, and she shuddered further with the revelation that she had actually known one of Tony's victims. To tell you this story in its entirety, we got to go back to the beginning. I moved to Nashville in 1990 with my husband. We're not married anymore, but, you know, different story. So we moved down here, and, you know, I needed to find a job right away, and I had retail experience, so I applied at this Dillard's location. 
So for those of you that don't know, or maybe don't have a Dillard's in your area, according to Wikipedia, Dillard's is an upscale American department store chain with approximately 282 stores in 29 states and headquartered in Little Rock, Arkansas. It's basically like a Macy's or a JCPenney or like a Kohl's. So I was hired there and I honestly can't remember whether Tony was there when I got there or if he was hired after me. I started there in October of 1990. So for timeline purposes, Gigi met Tony seven years before he was on the news for his involvement in Kathy Beadle's disappearance. Gigi recalls her initial impression of Tony. He was not a big guy, you know, a little like soft, pudgy, really pale, kind of pasty face. And he had that really kind of thin mustache, like thin lipped, thin mustache kind of look, very short brown, darkish hair, always slicked back. His look was very precise and really impeccable. He was always well-dressed, you know, nicely ironed white shirt, tie, always looked great. Impeccably dressed, teeny tiny mustache. We can see it now. In fact, we're looking at a picture of Tony Vick as we speak. I'll go ahead and describe Tony. He has like a nice round face. That tiny mustache is loud and proud. He has thin eyebrows, a short kind of cut hair with like a tiny, tiny little bang situation. Yeah. Billy used to have bangs like this. Yeah, my bangs <laughs> my bangs were a little bit longer than that. That's not a good thing. This this guy <laughs> this guy would, would, would sort of like be a greeter at a casino almost. That's what he looks like. Yeah. Hey, Tony Vick, how you doing? Come on in. Come on in. Tony Vick, come on. I, I got this. I'm telling you though, he looks believable. Like if I met this guy, I'd help him carry some groceries to his trunk. Oh boy. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> well, and the picture that we're describing, we'll post it on social media, but it has Tony Vick, like his name next to it. And I can, it just kind of all works together. Yeah. It honestly looks like he's doing jazz hands in this picture. Yes. Something it's, like that. Yes. You know, if I was, you know, just a girl walking down the street and I saw him, he would not be somebody I was attracted to, but I would say, oh, that's a that's a good looking man. He's put together. He's well-groomed, well-dressed. And if I was a guessing person at that time, I, I just kind of figured he was gay. So in 1990, Tony and Kathy Beadle had not yet crossed paths. In fact, when Gigi knew him, Tony was actually married to someone else. His wife's name was Amy, and she and Tony had been high school sweethearts. I found out that he was married to Amy, and I was just like, okay, you know, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe, you know, my spidey sense or my gaydar is totally off. But Amy had a position that was higher, more of a management position at Dillard's at another location. We actually found Amy and Tony's wedding announcement. That's from a Knoxville paper. So here are some of the highlights. Quote, Amy Williams and Tony Vick exchange vows July 7th, 1984 at the First Baptist Church. The bride is the daughter of Henry Burton Williams of Clarksville, Tennessee, and Fumi Sato Williams of Japan. Amy wore an ivory satin gown of re-embroidered Alan Kahn lace with pearl beading and iridescence with a sheer bodice and V-back that ended and a Basque waist. Now you're going to jump in and say, I said bodice instead of bodice, right? Honestly, I just really love hearing you describe like the details of fashion. Um, so I was like laughing, but also, yes, it's bodice. Bodice, yes. 
Is it or do the old timey people say bodice? Is it something that's changed over time? Old timey is eighty four, Jack. That's not that's not old timey. Before I escaped the Hindenburg, uh, that's what we were saying. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Fitted sleeves and a voluminous skirt. Voluminous. Voluminous. <laughs> I thought you were a writer. Fitted sleeves and a voluminous skirt scalloped with lace and a cathedral train and a cathedral veil of illusion. I did give Billy this part on purpose because I was hoping for this. This is honestly the best thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah. I love it so much. All right. So she is also carrying a bouquet of roses with pixie carnations and baby's breath. And after a honeymoon cruise to Mexico, the couple will reside in Knoxville. The article also states that Tony's brother Jerry was his best man and Amy's friend Lenny was the maid of honor. Their wedding colors were ivory and raspberry, which was the color of the bridesmaids and flower girl dresses. And there's also a photo of Amy from their wedding included in this announcement. So she has dark hair. This veil of illusion is ever present. Um, It's a very old photo and it's a little pixelated, but she looks undoubtedly beautiful. What do you guys think? She looks gorge. She does. Very classic. Very classic. And as Gigi said, Tony's wife Amy also worked for Dillard's. And by this point, the couple had also had a son who in 1991 was five years old. She worked in the Green Hills location, which was in a much um, more affluent part of Nashville. Occasionally, staff would come together for meetings. And she was what was called an area sales manager, meaning like she was over several departments. Gigi observed Tony and Amy interact. So I found out like, oh, she's married to Tony and they just seemed like kind of a mismatched couple. That's me being superficial and, you know, just based on initial appearances. I interacted with Amy on several occasions. She's a lot shorter than me. I remember that. And she kind of had dark brown curly hair and she had kind of a a curt way of speaking. She had kind of a plain tomboy kind of demeanor and way of dressing. And, you know, he was this kind of much posher looking, you know, like really impeccably dressed and groomed guy. So this phrase, opposites attract, seems to really apply here because despite their physical juxtaposition, they were married nonetheless and must have gotten along well enough and been close enough to work for the same department store. At first, Tony hardly even popped up on Gigi's radar. She was mostly concerned with passing the idle time at Dillard's. The department that I worked in, it was like ladies' designer clothing. And, you know, most nights, like, I would just literally be bored out of my mind. And there was a security guard there. And a lot of the security guards at that Dillard's were Tennessee state troopers, you know, just kind of moonlining as a side job. And there was one state trooper that I got to be really good friends with, and his name was Denny. And just a great guy. I mean, just so nice and fun to talk to. You know, he would walk around the store, but he'd hang out in my department sometimes, and we would just chat. And during one of these conversations between Gigi and Denny, the security guard, Denny said something that surprised her. I said to Denny, like, oh, yeah, I heard Tony, you know, brought in all these baked goods. They sounded wonderful. And, you know, I didn't I didn't get any. And, you know, that's why I'm starving and I need a snack. And he was known as like this really great cook and this really great baker and that he would always bring in these like, you know, really taste things to share with everybody. I will never forget this because his demeanor changed so quickly. He grabbed my arm above the elbow and like, like grabbed me and he looked at me and he's like, don't ever eat anything 
he brings in here. I was so, I mean, really surprised, I mean, more than surprised, kind of shocked at Denny's demeanor when he said that to me. I'm like, what are you talking about? What? And he's like, trust me, take my word. Don't eat anything he brings into the store. And I'm like, okay, well, that's just not normal. What are you, you know, and he wouldn't tell me anything else. Despite Gigi pleading with the state trooper Denny for more information pertaining to this ominous warning, he refused to elaborate. That just really kind of just turned me. That just felt, that felt creepy. You know, I, I'm one of those people that I really try to trust my gut because I think your gut, you know, steers you the right way most of the time. And Tony just kind of gave me the creeps even before I knew anything about him. Tony continued to work at Dillard's for a time, but then surprised his co-workers with the news that he was actually leaving Dillard's to open his own restaurant in Franklin, Tennessee. They're going to open up this like Southern restaurant, you know, and of course that made sense. Everybody knew Tony was a great cook and baker. And around the same time, Tony confided in his co-workers that he had been diagnosed with a serious case of cancer. And it was his cancer diagnosis that led Tony and Amy's restaurant to crash and burn rather quickly. It sounded like really bad luck. It was talked about in the store that Tony had cancer. And, you know, of course, everybody has the typical reaction, like, oh, that's awful, that's terrible, what, you know. And it was never said, like, what kind of cancer he had, but that he was really sick, it was really bad. And then then there was, like, this, you know, you know how, like, sometimes you, you, you're like, oh, you know, haven't heard anything about Tony lately. What's how I wonder how his health is. Does anybody know? And then the you know, the the word came like, oh yeah, like he got better. And I'm like, wow, it sounded really dire at first, and then, you know, had this like miraculous recovery. At this time, Amy Vick was still working at Dillard's. And after Tony's culinary failure and recovery from his terminal cancer, Tony returned to his retail job at Dillard's. But unfortunately, bad luck would continue to haunt the Vicks, and Amy would be the next to be victimized by a series of unfortunate events. After Tony Vick's restaurant endeavor failed, and he was diagnosed with cancer, his wife Amy would be the next to be on the receiving end of some very bad luck in February of 1993. And this was when she was involved in not one, but two car wrecks in the Nashville area. And these car wrecks were eight days apart. The first accident was alleged to have occurred when Amy skidded before hitting a piece of machinery on the side of the road. As a result of this accident, she was covered in glass and had cuts to her face and arms. The second accident was much more serious. She had rolled down an embankment before her car caught on fire. Miraculously, she survived. She was literally on fire when she emerged from this car. She was also very scraped up, but overall, she was going to be okay. And Gigi heard about Amy's car accidents, and she thought the whole thing was horrible. But as the case with coworkers, she really didn't give it a ton of thought after she heard the news. And by the time the car accidents occurred, Tony was no longer working at Dillard's. And then, within two months of Amy's car accidents, Gigi came into work and heard some news that knocked the wind out of her. I remember, you know, walking into 
the store and, and when you opened the store, you had to go get your money bag to open up your cash register and, you know, get everything prepared for the day. And I remember walking up to that area in the office and people were talking and I was like, oh, what's up? And you know, they're like, Amy Vick died. And that was shocking because I had only like just seen her, you know, maybe within a couple weeks of that at like, you know, some kind of Dillard's event. And I was just so surprised. And I, I was like, how did she die? It was April 5th of 1993 when Tony called the police to report that he'd found Amy unconscious in the tub in their master bathroom. According to Tony, the couple had actually been bathing together. And at some point, Tony left, got out to move his car. When he returned, Amy wasn't breathing. After calling the police, Tony frantically called a female neighbor who he knew was a respiratory therapist to come over and help resuscitate Amy. The paramedics came and observed the woman performing CPR on Amy And they also made another observation. Amy's hair was wet, but her body appeared to be dry. Strange. At that time, the people that I worked with said that she had fallen in the bathtub, hit her head and died. I'm like, oh, that's, you know, that's horrible. And I always just kind of thought that was ironic because Amy was supposed to be a really good swimmer. Like she was a really good athlete and a really good swimmer. And I'm like, gosh, that just seems so ironic that you, you know, you have this great talent and skill and, you know, you slip in a a bathtub and fall down and die. Yes. Amy was not only a good swimmer, she had even been a lifeguard at one point. So, yes, we can see how Gigi would find the story of how Amy died as ironic. But you see, there was actually nothing ironic about what happened to Amy. And according to the reporting on this case, even the police who had reported to the scene that day, suspected that this was no accident. In fact, on the police report, it stated, quote, foul play had not been ruled out. But somehow, ultimately, Amy's death was ruled as an accident. Because at that point, foul play could not be proven. Are you wondering why everyone is so suspicious that Tony could be involved in Amy's death? I mean, accidents happen all the time, right? Well, the answer to this question is where things get really interesting and where this whole diabolical thing comes in. It turns out the polished, eccentric, and impeccably dressed Tony had a very interesting history that involved friends' religion, fraud, criminal charges, as well as a string of additional deaths that were uncomfortably close to Tony Vick. So, of course, there's no way of knowing at what point in Tony's life he began his deceptions, but based on what Tony's brother Jerry said in a media interview, we know for sure that it started in the early 1980s. Tony was already with Amy, because remember, they were high school sweethearts. And at this time, Tony and Amy were living with her father. His name was Henry Burt Williams, and this was in Missouri. And Tony, in typical narcissistic, megalomaniac fashion, he fancied himself as this prophet of sorts. And they essentially started a cult. Other members of Amy's family really bought into what Tony was selling, especially Amy's aunt, Frances Baggett. And take note of her name because you're going to be hearing a lot more of her later. So now in this cult, Tony claimed that he could communicate directly with spirits and he would charge people to make contact and communicate with their dead family members. 
Tony went from conning people by masquerading as a cult leader in the early 80s to going after bigger fish in the middle of the decade. In 86, he had his first documented brush with the law for a scheme that was so fantastical that you'll struggle to believe that he thought he could ever get away with it. This time, Tony set his sights on a Nashville boys club. And this isn't a scam he would execute on his own. He would also recruit the help of his wife, Amy, as well as Amy's aunt, Frances Baggett. And Tony's big idea? He, his wife, and his wife's aunt would roll into this boys club and pretend to be royalty. Yeah, it's pretty bizarre world, but here's what happened. So Tony, Amy, and her aunt walked into the Thompson Lane Boys Club in Nashville, and Tony introduced the women as Princess Anne and Princess Catherine of Monaco. To bolster this fraud, he actually hired a limo driver to bring them there, security to accompany them, as well as a photographer. And you have to remember, this is 1986. You can't just quickly do a Google search to see if these people are who they say they are. So as nuts as this sounds, there's a chance it could have worked given the technological limitations of the time. And Tony told the boys club officials that he was a U.S. State Department official and that he would donate $500,000 to the organization, but only under the stipulation that the community had to match this donation with an additional $500,000 to be deposited directly into his account. This sounds familiar of like any scam that has ever come across my inbox. Not only that, he's such a cliche in that first he's a cult leader. Like he's dabbling like all the other cult leaders do. They're like, first I'm going to try to just be a straight up cult leader. Then I'm going to try these other scams. And then I'm going to escalate to something worse. Exactly. So interesting. And cliche. Try something new. Very cliche. So needless to say, the authorities catch on pretty immediately. And he was charged in the U.S. District Court and he admitted to this whole scam. And by this point, Tony had been implicated in yet another scheme at Nashville's Commerce Union Bank, where he was working at the time. He used the computer to raise his credit card limit from $1,000 to $35,000, and he's obviously not allowed to do this. During Tony's trial for these crimes, the reporting detailed how he claimed that he was not the one who committed these acts. He had taken on the personality of a character named Charles Bennett, and Tony wasn't aware of what he was doing. What the hell? So clearly, this is some version of an insanity defense. In 1988, he was sentenced for both of these scenarios. He was given four years, but guess what? Three and a half years were suspended. He was also fined a whopping $50 and was ordered to pay $16,000 in restitution. Honestly, you can't even... Parking tickets are like $80. Yeah. Like, that's insane. So if you're wondering if Amy or her aunt were punished for their role in this weird princess scam with the boys club, the answer is no. Amy's aunt Frances told the police that Tony could communicate with a higher authority and that he could also talk to the dead. So it's not clear what the police actually thought of all of this. So maybe by this point, they'd caught wind of the fact that these two women blindly followed Tony and did what he said, because for whatever reason, Amy and Francis weren't charged. They weren't punished in a court of law at all for their role in this. And I think it's very interesting and strange. And not long after this, the first of a string of suspicious deaths that happened around and directly benefited Tony occurred. Amy's 59-year-old father, Henry, he suddenly died of a heart attack on December 5th of 1988. And people die of heart attacks all the time, and it's usually not suspicious. 
But it is, in this case. Amy and Tony were living with Henry when this all happened. And they waited hours before they called the authorities. Tony eventually called a doctor who lived nearby, and without performing an autopsy, this doctor ruled that Henry did die of a heart attack. And this sounds weird, but honestly, autopsies often aren't performed if there is no reason for suspicion, especially in the deaths of older people. But the thing was, Henry was in perfect health, and his sudden death was surprising for those who knew him. And it's also worth noting that Amy and Tony were the beneficiaries of a $178,000 life insurance policy carried by Henry Williams. So maybe you might not be sold on his death being Tony's fault, and that's totally okay. But we have a feeling that you might change your mind after hearing what's next. Amy's aunt, Frances Baggett, remained close to the couple and presumably still believed in Tony's abilities to communicate with the dead. At this point, Amy and Tony were living in a duplex in St. Peter's, Missouri. And Tony, get this, was posing as a minister to land a job at the First Baptist Church. Yet he literally pretended to be a member of the clergy, and he got away with it. But he was ultimately fired for, guess what, poor performance. Well, it's pretty hard to recite the gospel that you don't know. (laughs) I mean, like, I don't know how you get away with something like that, but I mean, clearly it worked for a time. It worked enough. So then one night in 1991, Amy's aunt Frances, who we keep talking about, was staying with Amy and Tony for the night doing a little sleepover. That same night, her home mysteriously exploded into flames. So here's where the suspicious part comes in. Francis Baggett had a $70,000 insurance policy on the house. And at this time, she actually shared her checking account with her nephew-in-law, Tony. So the police investigated this explosion, and they found traces of gasoline in every room. But despite this, they were unable to prove who had started the fire. And Francis Baggett ultimately received this insurance payout, which essentially means that Tony received this insurance payout, and he did take a great deal of that money. So if anybody is counting right now, this means that so far, Amy and Tony received $178,000 for the death of Henry Williams and $70,000 for the fire at Francis Baggett's house. So Tony, right now, he's developing this pattern, and it's a taste for insurance money. And this point would be proven just months after the fire at Aunt Francis's home. In June of 1991, Aunt Frances parked her car on the median of Interstate 24 near Clarksville, Tennessee. She left a note on her steering wheel that said that her car had stalled on the freeway and that she was going to walk to get help. Frances Baggett got out of her car and then stepped in front of a passing truck, ending her own life. When police arrived, the keys to the car were in the ignition and the car easily started. There were no signs of mechanical issues at all. Amy and Tony were the beneficiaries of Aunt Frances's two $200,000 life insurance policies. And it was revealed that before Frances died, she actually tried to take out an additional million-dollar policy, which named Tony and Amy as the beneficiaries. Tony's brother Jerry told the Tennessean that he believed his brother manipulated Aunt Frances into killing herself, and that he had worked tirelessly to win her trust using religion and also by giving her money to help the homeless. Honestly, that is insane. Mm. 
like this particular instance is so insane because what this means is that he would have to manipulate her into wanting to kill herself and leave them all this money. And this is all for the great, you know, that's a wild thing to do. Right. But we see as you know, years prior, he was manipulating the same aunt into trying to perpetrate these schemes. Like clearly he had this incredible influence. Also, aunt Francis was married to somebody and yet somehow Tony was sharing a checking account with her. It's just like, it's unbelievable what Tony was able to do here. It's all about whenever somebody can say that they can give proof of an afterlife, this mm-hmm. life is more diminished then. And, and you know that there's something else out there. And he probably sold her a, a, a bill of goods that said, you're going to be able to help from over there more than you can help here. And this is what you should do. And it wouldn't be the first time that something would like this would not be the first time. No. And I think what you're saying super interesting is that like people who are so devout in their religion are not as afraid as of death as somebody who isn't. Absolutely, right. So yeah. for them, they're like, oh, I can leave this note on the steering wheel. Maybe he promised, hey, give me these beneficiary, make me the beneficiary to these accounts. I'll donate the money to the homeless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once you kill yourself, like who knows what lies he fed her. Yeah. But it's it's really just crazy when you see everything in succession here with the dad, with the fire, with uh with Aunt Francis and ultimately what happens with Amy. So we see this, the father, the fire. And we can't know for sure the mechanics of how Tony did this, how he manipulated these people into this, how he took these people's lives. All we do know is that every time there was destruction or death within close proximity of Tony, he collected large sums of money as a result. So you can take that for what it's worth. And it's also worth noting that several police officers connected to these independent cases, these deaths, this arson, suspected Tony's malicious involvement, but at the time did not have concrete proof or any tangible evidence to use to prove it. So there was little they could do about it at the time. I learned this after the fact that it occurred with Amy's father and aunt. I think their deaths got kind of seemed kind of suspicious after all this stuff emerged about Tony. You know, I think their deaths were sudden and maybe not suspicious at the time, but, you know, there were, then there were all these rumors that were going around, you know, after the whole story of Tony coming out. Suspicion of Tony heightened when the healthy 31-year-old former lifeguard, his wife, Amy Vick, was found dead in the bathtub of the home she shared with her husband. And somehow, despite the odd manner of death, and despite many people believing that Tony had in fact killed Amy, and despite Tony collecting $250,000 in life insurance money as a result of his wife's death, he skated after this also. He was never arrested or taken seriously as a suspect at all. And following Amy's death, Tony was now a widower, and he would have to raise his and Amy's son alone. And as Tony projected this outward appearance of a grieving husband to the neighbors, family, and friends, no one had any idea that he was already in the process of laying down the groundwork for his next plan. Remember how we said that Tony called a neighbor over to help give Amy CPR when he found her unresponsive? Well, that neighbor was a woman. She was a widowed mother of three, and her name was, wait for it, Kathy Beadle. The same Kathy Beadle who, four years later, was in a serious relationship with Tony Vick. 
the same Kathy Beadle that was missing with Tony Vick as the prime suspect in her disappearance. Now that it's clear what's going on, let's talk about how this is some diabolical shit. So what I think is super interesting is that if you look back at what we've discussed so far in this episode, Amy is also collecting this life insurance money when the father dies, when the aunt dies. Right. Like, But I, I want to be super clear here that I don't think Amy is the villain. I mean, they had been together since high school. And I think Tony just had this way. I think he hijacked people. I think he was very oh, skilled yeah. at it. And, you know, I really feel for Amy because it's like she might have thought of them as this pair who, who were doing these things together in the second it suited him. And who knows what that, what that, you know, demarcation line was. He turned on her and took her down and cashed her in for a life insurance yeah. policy. And who knows? Because they were together for a while before this happened. So it, it, it does beg the question, like, what was it? Like, was she getting fed up? And he's like, okay, like. I need to hash this out before I lose the opportunity to kill her because she might leave me. Like you, it does make mm-hmm. you wonder what it is. And then it's almost like the irony of that, of the fact that he literally called his next victim in as Amy's dying is just the most insane plot twist I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. It really reminds me of the, uh, the Bear Brook murders and Terry Rasmussen, where he would he would kill a, a woman, take their kids, use the kids to lure in another family, yeah. and then kill those kids. You know, it's just like, this is on that same level of diabolical. So after Amy's death, Tony began courting Kathy. Kathy's husband had been in the military and died in a plane crash. So she lived across the street from Tony and Amy for some time. So in 1994, a year after they became romantically involved, Kathy and Tony both sold their homes and decided to move from Nashville, Tennessee to Knoxville with their combined four children to start anew. And by the time that Tony Vick had left town with Kathy, he still owed $6,000 to the funeral home where Amy's service was held. And this is so fucked up. He had failed to even get a burial marker or a headstone for her final resting place. So dark. It's so dark. It's so mean. It's like, this is your high school sweetheart. And you, the second you, he was over it, he was just over it. He's like, I'm not paying the $6,000 for your funeral. I'm not, even though I, he literally got life insurance money. This is what the he life insurance money in. is for. Exactly. No, this it's what not it's like you didn't have the money for and, it. And you don't even get her a headstone. Like I was reading a blog post of one of Amy's close friends who was talking about trying to visit her burial site. And when she realized that there was no headstone, she was just floored. You know, she, yeah. she was like, she had to come have a groundskeeper show her where, where Amy was buried. And it's like, there was no marker. It's just, it's just despicable. It's the ultimate form of disrespect. It's like literally inconceivable. So based on all you've heard so far, it's clear that Tony seems to double down with every death that he's in close proximity to. He crafts bolder and bolder narratives and collects more and more money each time someone close to him dies. Which brings us to the subject we discussed at the top of this episode and the event that put Tony Vick back on the radar of our first degree, Gigi. So we're going to leave you with this until next week. So I found a blog about Amy that was created by one of her close friends. And the comment section really was a treasure trove of information filled with anecdotes about Tony shared by those who knew him. And here's one that I found that was particularly interesting. Tony worked for me for years managing my store. One day he called me in the back and gave me the sad story about how he'd been diagnosed with cancer. 
Everyone at the store believed him and were always praying for him and bringing him and Amy food. I believed him and kept him on full salary even though he wasn't working. Tony claimed that God healed his cancer. Tony came back to work for me, but after a month, I caught him stealing and I fired him. And this line really gave me the chills. A few weeks later, I found a live copperhead in the store. So for revenge for being fired, he put a snake, snake in there in this department store. <laughs> a very poisonous snake in the store. What, Jesus. What, but like this guy is that guy. And I think what I really want to drive home is that like these guys are existing in some form around us at all times. They're not all oh, killing. Yeah. But if you've ever feel like, hey, I think someone, I think that this feels like revenge. You're probably right. Like there are mm-hmm. people who operate in spite, who operate in greed. And I think people are in denial about these people existing. And we just question our own sanity every time we encounter someone like this. It's just so hard to imagine that people could actually act like this, not in like a movie. A movie. This is it, seriously like a script for some like weird crime movie because yeah. the actions that he takes just don't make any sense in a normal human mind. Well, what's extra fascinating about doing things like this, like putting a live copperhead in a store, what he's counting on is that it's so crazy that if the person, the target of this, you know, retribution talks about it, people will just think they're crazy and paranoid. Yeah, and I'll be able to believe them. Mm-hmm. So, no, a copperhead must have just wandered into your store. Like, it, it's too outlandish for a healthy brain to consider. So, you know, take that all with a grain of salt, people, because these people are fucking out there. Kathy Beetle died in March of 1996 and I think the story started to erupt when I think people started looking for her or asking questions to her whereabouts and he couldn't you know answer that question and I think that's like kind of when he when he went on the run you know some people give you the creeps and some people don't and he gave me creeps like I just had that that little voice that you know that little voice that says hmm you know watch out for that or something's not quite right. And I don't want to sound like, oh, you know, I had this vision of knowing something. It's it's your gut feeling. And I trust my gut feeling a lot. So when something like that happens, yeah, you know, you know, then you're like, oh, yeah, maybe I was right. Gigi had no idea how correct her intuition was. And ultimately, Tony's relationship with Kathy Beadle and her disappearance would finally reveal Tony Vick as the scam artist, fraud, and brutal murderer that he actually was. But if you think you've heard the last of Tony's jaw-dropping antics, you'd be wrong. Prepare to have your mind blown further in part two of this truly insane story. Well, thank you so much, Gigi, for being our first degree guest of this week. She will be with us again next week. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time and stick around tomorrow because we're going to have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends clothes. But not that close (laughs) happy noodle day happy garlic day ew sick what's the other one poet day
Yeah. Oh. Magical poet day or something. Magical poet day. Ugh. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring and creating original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, producing an additional writing by Taylor Rogers, and producing by Alan Santiago for Podcast One. Sources for this episode are The Tennessean, The Leaf Chronicle, The Jackson Sun, The Knoxville News Sentinel, The Associated Press, WATE TV6, Knoxville, The Johnson City Press, and as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source.